We are glad that you are listening to this audio recording produced by All Things New Church of Birmingham, Alabama. For more information regarding the ministries of All Things New Church, please visit us online at www.allthingsnew.us. We changed the order of reading tonight because I want to begin with John chapter 4. Um, in this incredible story of this encounter that Jesus had with this woman. Now, she was a Samaritan, and the Samaritans were a minority group, and that's important to understand what's going on in this passage of Scripture. They were despised, like minority groups are, and they were powerless. They were pushed down. The Jews considered them heretics because they had left traditional um, Jewish religion. They didn't worship at the temple on Mount Zion um, in Jerusalem. Instead, they worshiped on Mount Gerizim outside of a town called Sychar. They didn't recognize all of the Old Testament as God's word. They only recognized the first five books, so they rejected the prophets. Now, these reasons are kind of religious reasons that the Jews um, push them down, but there were also kind of there were ethnic reasons. They were half-breeds. They were half-breed Jews. They were Jews who had um, intermingled with non-Jews. And as a result, the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans was filled with hatred and fear. So here's this woman. And it's not easy belonging to a minority group in a majority culture, right? But even worse than that, this woman, the way that her kind of sense of hopelessness and despair works its way out into her life is she ends up having a series of unfulfilled relationships with men. Five different men that she was married to and now she's living with a man who's not her husband. So not only is this woman a part of a despised minority, she's also rejected by her own people. Her self-image You've got to know this. By the time this woman walks to this well to get water, her self-image is shattered. And she's carrying around this incredible, deep sense of guilt and worthlessness. She's lost trust in her own goodness. And she's convinced that no one could ever really love her. you've, You've got to see her walking up in shackles. I mean, she is imprisoned in the chaos of sadness and loneliness and despair and probably even hate. And that's why she comes to draw water at a time of the day when nobody else is at the well. All of the other women have come when it was cool in the morning or they'll come in the, in the, in the evening when it's cool. But she's trying to escape all of the other women because she doesn't want to feel or see or hear the rejection and the shame that they're going to heap upon her. So Jesus is sitting here by this well. He's tired and he's thirsty. His disciples have gone into the village to, get to buy some food. And he's sitting here, does an incredible thing. In an oriental fashion, he begs this woman for something to drink. Now talk about role reversal. Here is a person from the dominant culture 
who holds the title of the all-star within that culture. He's a rabbi. And he begs this woman to meet his needs. And in the midst of the discussion that that action kind of sparks into being, he says this to her, verse 13 of John chapter 4. Everyone who drinks of this water, the water that I'm asking you for, that our bodies need to live, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give will never be thirsty. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now, can you hear what Jesus is subtly saying to this woman, he's saying to her that if you drink from the fountain of God's love and compassion, you, you, whom everyone has discounted, you will become a fountain. That's big time. You will become this well of love. The very thing you're thirsting for will well up in you and you'll become a source of that for people. If you can receive the Spirit of God, you will give the Spirit of God to others. Now what Jesus is saying here, in, in order to hear what he's saying, you've got to see the image of this springing water. What Jesus is saying is that God's love has movement. It has direction. It is outbound. And what happens to the flow of God's love when it reaches one of us? Does it stop? No, that's not the image he gives here. It does not stop. Its outbound movement continues. God gives to us not only so that we can be nourished, but so that we will pass on that love and that nourishment and that goodness to others. Now this is Insane for him to be saying to, of all people, this particular woman. That we are not the final destination of God's love. We are midstream, so to speak. God's love, like all of God's gifts, flow into us so that they can flow through us to others. Look at verse 28. This is where it really gets kind of freaky. The woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She runs off to the village. It's so excited, she leaves her pitcher of water. Why? Because now she has inside of her living water. That's the image John is trying to craft. John has meditated on this encounter for decades. And for him, the leaving of the pitcher is a profound indication that something is happening inside of this woman that renders that pitcher irrelevant. She has this love flowing out of her that she immediately goes to the very town, the very people that have rejected her, that have reminded her day in and day out of her guilt and her shame. She goes to these people and she gives them something. It's huge. This is, this is mind-boggling stuff. Look at it this way. When we gather in this room on Sunday nights to worship God, His love flows into us. And these things that we do in this room, they are incredibly nourishing. When, when, we, when we are wrapped in glorious songs of praise, 
There's, it nourishes us. And, and when we are immersed in prayer, like we're going to do in a bit, it nourishes us. And when we receive the Eucharist, it nourishes us. And this weekly time that we have together, it's sustaining, it's, it's, it's feeding. But when we walk out of this room and when we turn from this room and when we face our family and our friends and our acquaintances, then in that moment, the dam that is holding in the flow of God's love is lifted and the life of God continues through us. So, teenagers, when you're sitting on your couch, Coke in one hand, bag of potato chips on the ground beside you, watching your favorite whatever, or adults, when you're working around the clock, not because you, you have to to feed your family, but so that you can park a better car in your garage than your neighbors. When we do these kinds of things, we're a dam. And we're holding back. But when you get up from the couch and you give your time and your energy to your brother or your sister, when you do the hard work of paying attention to someone you actually live with, to listen intently to your spouse, to your child, to an elderly person, when you go to Restoration Academy to help educate a student... That's why those things are so life-giving. Because you, you've moved the dam out of the way in this flow that God is putting into us, goes through us, and it is in that moment. It's when you stand midstream, not at the end, but midstream. It's in those moments that you discover what eternal life really is. It's in those moments, it's when the spring of water is pumping out of us that we discover eternal life. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to bury ourselves into that metaphor, that idea. We're going to look at John chapter 4 from a social angle. And we're going to see how Jesus is doing something quite profound on a social level in John chapter 4. And it's this. The gospel transforms and renews us socially by creating a culture of giving. Now let me say that again and then I'll unpack it. The gospel transforms and renews relationships, social issues, by creating a culture of giving. First of all, to people who are different from us, Think Jesus and the Samaritan woman. To people who are different from us, the gospel creates a culture of giving that flows out by impartial friendships. Look at John chapter 4 verse 7. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, Holy cow! That's my translation. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A woman of Samaria. Now jump down to verse 27. When his disciples come back, they marveled that he was talking with a woman. 
Now, it was obvious to this, this, this woman from Jesus' accent and the way he dressed that he was a Jew from Galilee. And it's obvious to Jesus that this woman, because of the time of day she's there, there were all of the cultural signals he needed to know that she was a social outcast. And so she's shocked. She's surprised that a Jew would speak to her. But Jesus cuts against all cultural norms. He's thirsty. More than his thirst for water, he is thirsty for reconciliation among all people. It's, it's, it's parching his mouth. He yearns for people who refuse to talk to each other to come together. Now, Paul really cuts to the heart of this in the passage that Janelle read from Romans chapter 12. Look, if you have your Bibles, just listen to verses 15 and 16. Romans chapter 12, when Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be conceited. Let's translate this, okay? Can you imagine how the racial issues would have played out differently in Birmingham if just the Christians would have followed Jesus' example at the water fountain? If just the Christians had, had violated social norms when it came to the well, or our version of that, the water fountain, if at the watering wells of Birmingham, white men and women would have spoken with humility, not superiority, not from above, but like Jesus did, from below, begging for our needs to be met, from people who've never been given a chance to meet our needs. Can you imagine what would have happened, what life would be like now in Birmingham if over-the-mountain elites had followed Jesus' example and approached the minorities, not from above, but from below. If the great creator God of the universe can stoop to beg from a moral outcast, what would have happened in Birmingham if the privileged had stooped to beg help from the blacks. Can you imagine how things would be different today? Can you imagine what court cases would not be going on right now? Right now, if the powerful whites had lifted up and affirmed their fellow black citizens in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, what would be different today if white folk in Birmingham had yielded their lives to Romans chapter 12, verses 15 and 16? What if they rejected arrogance and associated with the lowly by rejoicing with them when they were rejoicing and weeping with them when they were weeping? Would those four little girls have been killed on Sunday morning, September 15th, 1963? Would it have happened? You see, to live in harmony we must reject 
the kind of arrogance that keeps us from living in deep communion with the hearts of people who are different than us. So what about you? Look at your friend set. Who do you celebrate with? Who do you let into the weeping places in your heart? Is it a group of people just exactly like you? Or is it with people from different socioeconomic levels, different skin colors, different set of hobbies? Who are your heart companions? Are you repeating the same sin in a different mode than people did here several decades ago? You see, the gospel radically changes society. And by that I mean our relationships, our social relationships. The way the gospel changes it is it makes people into givers. And particularly in John 4, givers who meet differences by offering impartial friendship. Do you see how the kingdom of God will bring powerful transformation. Not just to us individually like we talked about last week, but to our relationships. Now, that's just one way. There's a second way in this encounter Jesus had that we see the gospel at work socially. It's this. To the people who harm us, The gospel creates a culture of giving that flows out of us in relentless reconciliation. To the people who harm us, the gospel creates a culture of giving that flows out of us in relentless reconciliation. Let me show you what I mean. This woman at the well running back into town, back to the people who've rejected her and scorned her and turned her into a social pariah. She's running to these people. And what about Romans chapter 12? Listen again to what it says in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. What I want you to see here is that Paul is insistent. In fact, the whole New Testament is insistent on this point. Christians do not let relationships die. This is a fundamental way that Christianity changes us from the rules of the world. We do not give up on any relationship. We don't let it die. Even when they go to the point of being our enemy, we pursue them with food and water, not anger and vengeance. The gospel creates this culture of giving that is a relentless pursuit of reconciliation. It's just as relentless as a river trying to get to the ocean. 
That's what Christianity does. The moment that you or I say, I will not forgive, I will not reconcile, in that moment, we are forcefully denying the work of God in our own life. But the truth be told, we live in an unforgiving culture. Unforgiveness seeps into our pores. And if we're going to live in harmony with one another, if we're going to live peaceably with everyone, if we're going to help our enemies, we've got to learn the art of forgiveness as part of the gospel culture of giving. So I want to spend the remaining few minutes talking about a biblical approach to forgiveness. Because I think this might be the real cutting edge of what's going on inside our houses and inside this community. First of all, let me just say that forgiveness always involves two actions. Okay, This is the DNA of forgiveness. Forgiveness always involves these two actions. First of all, to forgive someone is to claim that they've sinned against you. Okay, To forgive somebody is to simultaneously say... You need forgiveness. Has anybody ever said, I forgive you, and you didn't think that you had done anything wrong? It's insulting, right? What do you mean you forgive me? Your mama, I didn't do anything to you. Why, why, do you, why do we bristle when somebody says, I forgive you, and we don't think? Because forgiveness is a simultaneous accusation and condemnation. It is a declaration that we have offended this person. Now, what I'm trying to say here is that when you, tell, when you forgive someone, you are simultaneously accusing them of wrongdoing. It is not forgiveness to shrug off what they've done. And it is not forgiveness to sweep it under the rug. There is no way to give the gift of forgiveness without the sting of condemnation. When you forgive someone, you are saying... You need to be forgiven. Now, that's the first action. All forgiveness involves two actions. First, it's to say you need to be forgiven. You've done a wrong thing. It's to accuse. The second action is this. It is the generous gift of relieving someone from a debt they really owe you. Justice is equivalent punishment. That's justice. Eye for eye kind of thing. You did X, you deserve Y. That's justice. Forgiveness gives that up. It gives up the right to justice. This is where forgiveness moves into the realm of giving. To forgive is to give a person the gift of existing as if they never did any wrong toward you. When I forgive you, I absorb the injury. As Tolstoy put it, by forgiving, I swallow the evil up. And I prevent it from going any farther. Look at it this way. Revenge multiplies evil. Justice contains evil. Forgiveness overcomes evil. Now, that's forgiveness. Accusation and release. I want us to notice three things that that says to us about forgiveness 
that is positively countercultural. Number one, forgiveness does not depend on emotions. Janelle and I were watching, and Allison, Medea on Monday night. Medea goes to jail. Have you seen this? It's one of the classics. And there's this powerful scene where Medea's in prison, and a preacher tells a group of inmates that to forgive is to release yourself from bitterness. And the preacher's words are very similar to Dr. Phil, who has a cameo, okay? And not on Medea goes to jail, but one time Dr. Phil was with Oprah and they were chit-chatting in front of 60 gazillion people. And Dr. Phil said this, forgiveness is a choice you make to release yourself from anger, hatred, and resentment. Now, it's true that we benefit from forgiving. If, if Alan sins against me and I forgive him, it does benefit me. But we forgive. This, 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 is, this is at the heart of what Christ is, is saying. Throughout the Gospels, when he talks to us about how to forgive, when we forgive, it is not primarily about ourselves. It is to give the offender a gift. It is the flow of love to the other person. We do not forgive primarily for our own sake. Forgiveness is a gift we give to the other person. And it's one of the primary ways that a church makes its love for one another visible to the world. Emotional healing is a good thing. And there are many paths that lead to it. But it is not the main purpose of forgiveness. To forgive means I forego a rightful claim against you for wronging me. To forgive is a gift I give you whether I am emotionally healed as a result or not. Now that's one thing that, that we need to realize when we look at these two components of the DNA of forgiveness, accusation and release. The second thing we need to notice is this. Forgiveness is not dependent on repentance. It's not dependent on repentance. It's definitely more difficult to forgive somebody who refuses to repent of what they've done to you. In fact, if I sin against Tom and I refuse to repent of it, it's a form of continuing my offense just in a different way. But what we learn when we look at the gospel is that forgiveness is never earned. And I'm very grateful for that because my whole standing with God depends on that. Forgiveness is not earned. It is not a reaction to something else. Forgiveness is a gift. It's a beginning of something new. Remember the reason that we forgive is that that's what it means to follow Christ. Forgiving somebody who refuses to repent is not an optional extra for the Christian way of life. It is the essence of the Christian way of life. Why? Because John 4, God's love is a flowing river. And when I forgive somebody else, I am being restored to my full human splendor. I was created to mirror God and anything less 
then free forgiveness is a, is a betrayal. It is Judas' kiss on my own cheek by myself, betraying who I was made to be. Our pride uses the excuse of their lack of repentance to let us off the hook of doing the hard work of offering the gift. Now, forgiveness is not completed as an exchange. It's a social exchange until they repent and receive it and all of that. So forgiveness is... But your job in forgiveness has nothing to do with the offender's repentance. Now, that leads us to a third lesson about true forgiveness, and it's this. True forgiveness is not a state of mind. It is a social exchange. It is not forgiveness if it just goes on in your mind, in your heart. To say, oh, I've forgiven them, but I've never actually spoken it to them is like saying I've given you a gift that I've never actually given you. You know what a gift is that's ungiven? Just a box of something sitting in your closet. It's no longer a gift. As hard as it is for us to forgive, and we could stop right here and all, I'm sure, weep and wail and say, woe is me. But as hard as it is to forgive others, I I think it might even be harder to receive forgiveness. And receiving forgiveness has its own DNA, just like offering forgiveness. And it's got two components. And the first is you must receive the accusation. To receive, see, think of forgiveness as a social exchange. It's a gift. So if I give Fran a gift, now I give it to him, but until he receives it, the gift exchange is incomplete, right? So for Fran to forgive me of a sin against him, for that whole forgiveness cycle to be complete, I must receive it. I must confess my wrongdoing. I've got to receive his accusation. I've got to confess it. And and here's the hard part. I've got to repent which might be the hardest thing any human being has ever had to do in their life, to repent. If you refuse to confess or to repent, you refuse to accept the gift of forgiveness. Now that's the first action when it comes to receiving forgiveness. The second action is this. And all of this is going on in John 4. This woman has to go through all of this stuff in that moment when Jesus, the creator of the universe, is offering her forgiveness. He's going through his side of the transaction. And in that moment, she's having to decide, holy cow, am I going to take this inestimable gift or not? And the second action Not only did she have to accept his accusation, because he nailed her to the wall on it. He said, go get your husband. She said, I mean, he was bringing it up. The second action she had to do is this. To receive forgiveness, you must receive the release from debt. Now, how do you do that? Well, it's simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. You believe and you rejoice with gratitude that such a generous gift has been given you. But some people, I'm sure we've all been there, we refuse to be forgiven because we're too ashamed of our sin. So our guilt eats away at us like a deadly cancer. And we prefer the um, pain of self-inflicted punishment to the pangs of our conscience. So we reject forgiveness and we fight it and we insist on enduring the punishment that we think we deserve 
But you know what's really going on there? Pride. That's really about pride. It's pride choosing the easy way out. Instead of the hard work of reconciliation, we fight against receiving forgiveness because the pain of punishment is easier than squarely facing the guilt and receiving the forgiveness. But here's the irony. Punishment can never release us from guilt. Only forgiveness can. This is my uh, grandpa's journal. He was a, a farmer before he became a preacher. And so he was in the habit of getting up every morning and writing what the weather was like. My grandfather had four children. Aubrey was the oldest, whom I'm named after. Then my dad, Wayne. Then Juanita and Pam. Here's my grandfather's journal entry from... August the 10th of 1951. It was a Friday. Today started off like any other day. Oval and I milked. The boys got up, put on their cowboy outfits. I saddled their horses. My grandfather owned a plantation. I promised them I would give them a spanking this evening because they left the smoothing iron on all night. I knew I wasn't going to spank them when I told them. Sister and I went to the post office. Sister's what they called Juanita. We went to the post office to mail a letter. We found two trains had crashed head on and were burning about two miles up the track. I came back and got my Bible and went to the scene of the wreck. Jean Roy went with me in my car. And while I was over there helping the wounded out, a car ran into Aubrey Jr. and his horse and killed them both. When I got to Simsport with my load of people, they were piling the dead bodies of the soldiers in the back of their trucks and taking them into town. When I got to Simsport with my load of people, I was taking to the clinic. My boy was there, dead. And his mother was crying something awful. This happened about nine o'clock. We couldn't move him until we got permission. The road was blocked from Simsport to Letsworth. About 11 o'clock, we got permission to move Aubrey's body to, Morganza, to the Morganza Clinic. We had to have a police car to take us through the blockade. In Morganza Clinic, I met the man who was driving the car that killed my boy. I think he was suffering worse than I. So I put my arm around him and tried to tell him that I had no ill feeling in my heart toward him. A couple of years later, that man killed himself because he tried to go the route of self-inflicted punishment instead of receiving the gift of forgiveness. And that same story will play out in every one of our lives. If you think that for an instant, the easier road, instead of facing up to your guilt, is to try to handle it yourself. It is a cancer that will destroy you. 
only forgiveness releases us from guilt. And it's hard work. I like to read people like Anne Lamott in moments like this. She, um, her mama was apparently wacko and she once wrote, I prayed for my heart to soften toward my mother, but my heart remained hardened toward her. I refused to be nice to her and I didn't forgive her for being a terrified, furious, clinging, sucking maw of need and arrogance. But after taking some initial steps toward forgiveness, Lamont wrote, I discovered I had forgiven her for a number of things, although for none of the big ticket items, like having existed at all or for having lived so long. But still the mosaic chips of forgiveness I felt that day were a start. What I'm saying is this. Whichever side of the track you're on, whether you were driving the car or bearing your son, whether you have been sinned against or you have sinned against someone, whichever side of the track you're on, I'm not trying to make light of your struggle. The road from this sermon to forgiveness is a long road filled with all manner of obstacles. And you may need to rage for a while against the person who's harmed you or against God. But one day, one day, if you will embrace the river of God's love flowing into you, then one day, like the woman at the well, you can run back to those whom you've sinned against and those who have sinned against you and you can offer and receive forgiveness. And if you don't, then like the man who struck Aubrey, you are turning away from real living. All right, that's heavy enough. Let's bring it all home. In John 4, what I'm trying to show us tonight is that we see a picture, an incredible picture, of how the gospel transforms relationships. How it transforms a community socially. But remember, this empty, thirsty woman, Christ knocked on the door of her heart, but she had to say yes for Christ to indwell her. She had to receive Him in faith and gratitude as God's gift. Now the question for all of us tonight, every single one of us, is this. Are you doing that? Are you making yourself available for Christ to dwell in you through His Spirit? Now, if you do, and if we do this as a church, if we open our hearts to receive Christ and to welcome the river of God's love into our life, we will become givers. It will create a culture of giving. And this will bring healing to relationships. Now, I, I want to wrap up with just one little image. Well, not a little image, but very quickly one big image. Think of a culture of giving whether it's to the needy or to the different or to the person who's wronged us, think of it in terms of the cross and the resurrection. Okay, now, you've worked hard listening tonight, but press, I want you to think hard about one last thing, this. 
Did Christ's death cause his resurrection? And the answer is no, it did not. The Spirit of God caused Christ to be raised from the dead. Now, it's the same way when you and I give to needy people or we give friendship to different people or we give forgiveness to those who've hurt us. The Spirit of God will take the death you have to endure in the giving of that gift. And no matter how long you are covered by the dark earth of cold winter, spring will come and new life will sprout out of those gifts. And it may appear that we give in vain to the needy. It may appear that we, we give in, 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 in vain to the different or to the offender. But the Spirit of God, just like He resurrected Christ and made His death produce fruit we haven't even seen the end of, the Holy Spirit will take your gifts that you give and one day, either in this life or in the life to come, He will raise a harvest that is more abundant than you could have imagined in your wildest dreams. Let's pray.